Hey Ashmeet, welcome to the show. Hi Natraj, good to see you again. Um, so before we talk about you know venture your career uh, and some of the interesting things that you've done. Uh, to just set the stage to the audience uh, listening, can you talk a little bit about your early career in tech and uh, how you ended up in venture capital? Sure. I am entirely a product of Silicon Valley, even though I grew up in India and came here to study eventually to Stanford. But I've done many different jobs, so geographically very limited, but uh, different types of jobs, including working as an engineer at Silicon Graphics, starting and running a company, SSI, early in my career where I was founder and CEO, and then director of product management at VMware when VMware was a startup. So small, early stage companies, very different types of jobs. And then accidentally, I became a venture capitalist. After VMware was sold, I was uh, thinking of doing another startup, started chatting with some friends, met the good folks at Foundation Capital, and Mike Chu, Catherine Gold, Bill Elmore, these people changed my life. You know, they just said, hey, do you want to be a VC? And I was like, hmm, that's an interesting question. Why do you ask? And so one thing led to another and uh, very grateful to them because they brought me into the business, taught me how to do investing uh, and eventually launched my career. What was it like, you know, to be in product management? Uh, I think you were developing ESX at that point of time. If I'm not wrong, uh, what was that experience like? Yeah, so I think VMware was a very well-run company. I was running product management for ESX Server, as you noticed. Um, and ESX Server became the most important product for the company by far. I mean, it really is the heart of what made VMware the tremendous success that it is today. And um, it was a classic product management job in the sense that I was the, quote, CEO of the product where I had the responsibility, but not the authority. And so it was management, uh, you know, by, by, uh, uh, by influence, management, by learning, doing, helping. And uh, the company became a tremendous success, and I'll take partial credit for that. But obviously, like any big success, it was a team effort. And so then you decided to join Foundational Capital. Uh, so what was that journey like, and uh, how did, you know, shifting from you know being working in different companies or being a founder change when you started working in partition yeah so you know thinking as an operating executive in any role in a company is very different from thinking like an investor in a venture capital fund or any form of investing and that transition in my case fortunately was a gradual transition as i mentioned i left with the intention of starting another company and doing a startup and so I first was uh, exploring ideas, thinking about doing a startup as an EIR, an entrepreneur in residence. But then I switched to the investing side and learned that uh, many times, you know, things that uh, are positives in operating can be negative in investing and vice versa. So uh, the simplest example I always like to tell people is that, you know, if you make a reference call on someone and the first thing they say is, well, this person is really hard to work with. Well, if you're looking to hire someone, that may be, you know, something that gives you pause. That is unlikely to give you pause if you're a venture capitalist. Um, often some of the best founders can be very hard to work with. Not all of them, not necessarily, but sometimes they can be. So it's a different way of thinking. It's a different way of evaluating and looking at the world. And in my case, it was a gradual transition. I had the luxury and privilege 
where I would go to board meetings with Catherine Gore, Mike Shu. Um, we would sit, we would analyze the board meeting, we would analyze pitch decks from entrepreneurs. And that's how I learned how to invest. I mean, truly in the apprentice model is how I learned how to invest. What are the, some of the investments that you made there? Uh, made a whole bunch of investments. Uh, um, for example, Azure Power is uh, a company that I led the seed round in, served on the board of, eventually went public and uh, traded at um, you know over $2 billion. So created a lot of value in terms of an investment. Freewheel is another company where I led the investment. And most recently, uh, you may have heard about Tubi TV, which was acquired by Fox. I was also the seed investor there, had served on the board there. That was my last investment at Foundation Capital. Was, so this is a very long dated business. You know, the last investment I made actually exited only about, I think about a year or two ago uh, that Fox bought uh, Tubi. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I noticed that you led the investment for Tubi and I was about to ask, what, what was sort of the insight then back then uh, on investing in Tubi? Well, the original idea was completely different from what it became, you know. Uh, which and, is not usual in companies. So Farhad, who is the founder and CEO of Tubi, um, he had noticed that smart TVs were becoming important. And there was this hypothesis that we would be able to own some piece of that software between the smart TVs and how content gets delivered to those smart TVs. We did not think of ourselves as an ad-funded Netflix competitor, which is sort of the way I described Tubi you know, what eventually became the successful business model. But that's what good entrepreneurs do. They evolve, you know, they change very quickly. They rapidly understand what the market is doing and they take the whole company with them. So uh, in my book, it's not a bad idea to evolve. Even Azure, the first company that I mentioned, our original idea was we were going to do retail solar. Um, it became a completely different company by the time it went public. So that's very common in successful companies um, that you go through a fairly dramatic change along the way. VMware was a test and dev tools company. Uh, we became an enterprise server consolidation business, you know, really an enterprise uh, data center infrastructure company by the time uh, we became a substantial large business. So those types of evolutions are normal, natural, and part of what successful stories are built with. So after Foundation Capital, at some point you decided to start your own fund. Um, what, what was sort of like the motivation behind that? You know, that's a really easy question to answer and a really hard one to answer depending on uh, which day of the week it is. Um, the simple answer is, you know, why does someone leave a company like uh, Google or Facebook or Microsoft to go start a company, right? I mean, you have great jobs, you have a great position, you're obviously on something which is going to be there forever. And yet uh, great people leave these companies and go start you know, their own organization. So there is something deep inside us. There is something you know, very hard to explain uh, by me as an engineer. I think it's something for psychologists and people with other expertise to explain. That urge was certainly there and was certainly part of the story of uh, what made me a start engineering capital. The other part of the story uh, is that there was a very clear uh, market opportunity, which was becoming obvious to me by that time in the, in the year 2013, 2014, when I was started thinking about this very seriously. Um, so almost you know, eight, nine years ago now. Um, it, and, and that was the change that was going to happen to the structure of the venture ecosystem. So venture traditionally 
had been a single formula that was applied again and again by the best funds. You raise funds in the 200 to $500 million range. You are a partnership of three to 10 people and you try to do series A's. That's what everybody did. That's what Sequoia, Excel, Greylock, Foundation, Mayfield, Kleiner, um, everybody was trying to do that. And that formula was predicated on the belief that leading the series A's where, is where the value got created. And yeah, there were a couple of exceptions. There were a couple of growth stage firms which would do some things. But then you really went through Wall Street and you tried to go public as fast as possible. All of that changed dramatically, you know, about 10 years ago, about 15 years ago, it started changing. And those two big changes that came in were, number one, the cost to start a company went down dramatically. Number two, the cost to take a company public went dramatically. And these two opposing forces ripped apart the venture ecosystem. And that's why you saw this Cambrian explosion where firms like uh, Sequoia decided to become big. Uh, firms like Benchmark continued to do what they do, what they were doing then. And firms uh, like me got created uh, who decided to focus on the emerging seed ecosystem. So this structural change um, was, you know, it's a one-time change. It happens in industries when technologies, et cetera, drive these forces. And, uh, and that's what I took advantage of to start engineering capital. Why, why did the cost of taking a company public go up? Or what do you mean by, you know, cost of company? Is, this, is it because you have to pay more, you know, much larger to the investment bankers? Or uh, what essentially changed? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I did word it exactly right. It's not the cost to take it public. Yeah, I mean, that did go up a little bit with regulation and stuff. And yeah, investment bankers make a little bit more. What I really should have said is that the, the typical investments that companies took before they went public went up. And the reason for that is um, that, uh, number one, it has become less attractive to be a public company CEO. Um, because of overregulation, because of litigation, because of the way our public markets have developed, it is not attractive to be a public company CEO. And so people want to defer that. They want to delay that as much as possible, which means they can take more capital. Number two, there was more private capital available, which could then take advantage of those disproportionate gains that come when companies go public. People forget Microsoft went public at an 800 million valuation. Amazon went public at a 400 million valuation. Um, these would be series B rounds in today's market. Um, but what that also means is that all the gains that happened from 800 million to 2 trillion in the case of Microsoft or Amazon, or let's call it a trillion dollars in round numbers, um, all of those gains were made by public market investors in the case of Microsoft, Amazon, Google, et cetera. Um, today, a lot of those gains are being made by private market investors. That's not a good trend. As a citizen, as someone who thinks about, you know, the future of the country, I don't think that's a good policy to do. But at the end of the day, I'm not a policymaker. I'm not a politician. I'm not a legislator. That's not what I do. That is what, for various reasons, has become the way our public markets work. And so, um, it therefore, as a side effect of that, it became more attractive to stay private. And therefore, people took more money on the private markets. Private markets were available to give that capital. And so, the total investment that happened on a cap table became very, very large. And that's what allowed large funds to exist and large company, large firms to be built around that. 
So in a way, you could also say that large firms saw an opportunity that from the lesson of Amazon and Microsoft, that if we can capture, if we put the companies private for longer, we could capture more value. Is is that a... Absolutely. That is explicitly what Sequoia said when they restructured the firm uh, a short while back, when they talked about why they were going to the Sequoia fund as one of, you know, one of their restructurings was that they wanted to continue to hold companies while they were public, after they were public. Uh, was Part of that motivation was to keep them private for longer, let them go public, and then continue to hold them because there was so much value creation that occurred over there. Look, that's an individual firm strategy. I'm talking about the structure of the industry. Yeah. So let, let's talk about that too, because I think in the last couple of years, this strategy sort of, the whole phenomenon sort of peaked at you know, venture firms creating uh, ever-holding funds where they can hold public companies that have gone public from their portfolio, like A16Z did it, Sequoia did it. Uh, I think there's a sort of talk that they're scaling back on it, but how do you see that? And how do you see that argument? Because you talk to LPs while you're raising your funds, right? How do you pitch that as value to LPs? Uh, because LPs, you know, traditionally obviously diversify between public funds and private funds, right? So how are you sort of, now you're essentially saying that I have the capacity to maintain and rebalance public market for portfolios, which is not your technical skill that you've developed over the decades, right? So for what is the pitch there like? Yeah, for me personally, that's not my expertise. That's not my area that I pitch to LPs. And that's not what engineering capital is about. But clearly there are some firms, you mentioned in recent Horowitz, et cetera, who have decided that they want to either build that expertise or they already have that expertise, that's up to individual firm strategy. The person who's running the firm makes a decision about firm strategy. In other words, what is your expertise? Where do you excel? Where do you have a competitive advantage and how are you going to make money? And so I think LPs evaluate that on a case-by-case basis. You know, certainly firms like Andreessen are very large. And so they're talking to very large, sophisticated LPs and they have the ability to evaluate that. Yeah. Uh, so you, uh, you know, obviously saw this change in the industry, decided to start your own fund. Uh, how did you end up on what thesis to pick? Uh, not how, but what thesis to pick in general? And talk to me a little, a little bit about that process. Yeah. So um, again, I want to acknowledge Catherine Gould, who was founder of Foundation Capital. You know, she was instrumental in helping me think through. Uh, once I went to her and I said, I really am going to start my own firm and uh, figure out what is it that I wanted to do. And what I wanted to find was at the intersection of where there was a market opportunity, where I had an unfair advantage, I had a competitive advantage, and was something that I enjoyed doing, something I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So where was that subset where all of those things were true? And that happened to be very early stage, deep tech, technically challenging investing, here in Silicon Valley, and that's what engineering capital is about. You know, it's really taking advantage of that that small subset. You you talk about technic, uh, investing into technical insights as a theme, right? Talk to me a little bit about, you know, what do you mean by investing in technical insights? And like, give me an example of what is a technical insight versus which is not a technical insight. Sure. So technical insights, you could call them technical innovation. Some people think of them as patents. Some people think of them as creative, new, you know, disruptive ideas. 
I define them in the following way because I only do software. So I also want to distinguish myself from other people who are investing in hardware, trying to do that. Technical insights in software means if I was to describe what I'm trying to do, it would not be obvious to someone else, a good engineer, how you would do it. They'll go, wow, that's a difficult problem. I don't know how to do that. Uh, so that's a technical insight if you have a solution like that. Um, what are some examples of technical insights? Let me start with some hardware examples because those are the easiest to understand. Today, it is clear that an enormous amount of physical innovation is limited by battery capacity. Imagine if you could make a better battery, right? If it had higher capacity, if you could charge it faster, if it could last for more cycles, if it had less weight, if it took less space, any one of those variables, if you could make it better, that would be a technical insight. And it would allow you to create, you know, a fundamentally new business over there. In software, it gets a little bit more subtle, a little bit more nuanced, but here are some examples. I have a company called V-Function. They can take monolithic software, traditional, just say Java applications, C, C++ applications written as a single piece of software and automatically refactor them into independent microservices, which can be deployed in a cloud architecture. That's an incredibly hard problem to do. If you have a computer science background, you're like, well, how do you deal with the global variables? You know, programs have global variables. They have state. You know, how do you yeah. split it up? Uh, that's the magic. So that's one example. I have having, having done splitting models into microservices, it will take you years doing that. Yes. And, you know, tens of teams inside Microsoft, for example, we have tens of people. Like in the cloud era example, right? We went from non-cloud era to cloud era. There were thousands of people just working on doing this. Um, right? it's, it's a very big problem. It's a very hard and a very technically challenging problem. And now we have a startup where we can, in the course of an hour-long demo, or a day-long workshop, we can take your existing monolithic and show it, show it to you running with separate microservices. So, you know, that's the power of a technical insight. That's the power of a technical team saying, hmm, can we solve this problem in a creative new way that nobody has thought about before, which would then unlock enormous value? I think it's obvious to you the amount of value that a V-function is uh, able to uh, unlock. I was going to give some other examples. I have a company called Robust Intelligence. Right? They specialize in protecting machine learning models. Machine learning, when you run any kind of AI, machine learning, etc., they are susceptible to all many forms of failure, many forms of security issues, not just cybersecurity. In other words, in addition to the traditional cybersecurity, I mean, you don't want someone breaking your password or hacking your network or you know, getting access to the machine. Just the model itself, the way machine learning works, you know, it's susceptible to data poisoning. It's susceptible to hallucinations. It's susceptible to, there are many examples of things that it's susceptible to. Here we have a team, uh, Yaron Singer, you know, he's a PhD from Berkeley. He was a professor at Harvard. Um, he left to start the company. We have some of the world's best technology um, to protect machine learning at scale. So those are examples of technical insights in software where somebody is able to solve a hard and interesting problem. So when you first you know, uh, started the fund, one of the typical problems you face is how do you get in front of you know, these good founders who are technical, uh, 
you know, if they are searching for a VC or an early stage investor, uh, you know, they'll probably search in Google or, you know, they'll go to the usual players. You're, you're a new firm trying to establish yourself, trying to probably source deals. Like how, how did you think about that in the initial dates? Yeah, so that is the heart of the venture capital business. Like any other startup, I'm also a startup, or at least I was a startup several years ago. And, you know, people have to know about who you are. You have to go and find your quote-unquote customers. In this case, they're not really customers in a traditional sense because I want to give them money, but I have to go find these people. And you do them in the same way that every company, you know, finds their own way. So, for example, in my case, I'm hoping that maybe people will listen to this podcast and they will say, aha, here is a VC who is perfect for him. Here is someone who, that they want to talk to where he would not be well served by a traditional firm. I also do the traditional things in terms of networking and talking to people and going to events and you know doing all of those. But you have to build your practice. Venture capital at the end of the day is a services business. It is a business where we win if we can serve our CEOs better than anyone else. They have to be convinced that you will be the best partner for them. The best CEOs, the best companies have choices. They have multiple people willing to invest in them. And so they have to choose you as an alternative to others. And uh, I'm very proud to say, I mean, I obviously have built a portfolio now uh, uh, that uh, I've been successful in doing that. Uh, one of the things I think uh, in, in, uh, in the interaction that we had last time you spoke about is the physics of venture capital um, and how sort of, I think we, I mean, as a venture capital, as an industry sort of derailed from seeing the physics of venture capital and started investing in ideas that not necessarily are venture, uh, fit in the venture model, like where you can't expect uh, a 10x or 100x or a 1000x return. Uh, I, I, I would give a classic example of like a VC firm investing in a, um, and then other incubator sort of like live-in companies. Uh, there are a bunch of companies that came up in pandemic where, you know, just they would invite founders and grog something and, you know, use the space to create something. Uh, and a VC firm basically invested in that company uh, or let the seed round or something like that, which didn't make any sense to me because what leverage are, you know, especially tech makes a lot of venture sense because technology itself is a big leverage, right? You put X amount of work, you can get 10X output from the code, you can repeatedly use it. That's where the leverage is coming from. Uh, so talk to me a little, a little bit about, you know, what is the physics of venture capital and what happened in the you know, last three, four years that we've seen? Venture capital is fundamentally a long tail business. It is a business that wins and succeeds in the rare few cases where you get exceptionally high returns. That is how venture capital has always been built. Most companies are not well suited to venture capital returns, even though there may be other good, there may be reasonably good investments on the, in their own right. So it's not a knock to say that it's not a good match for a venture capital fund. In fact, it's the reverse. It's only the rare few that is a match for a venture capital fund where a venture capital firm should be investing. In the example that you gave, I don't know obviously the work firm that you're talking about, but what I have seen sometimes is that firms will invest in an incubator or an accelerator in the hope that it will result in deal flow for them. So they'll put a little bit of money in just so that they can see all the companies that go through so that they could pick one 
to solve the previous problem that you were describing, which is how do I get new companies, you know, to how do I become aware of these new companies? And how do I know that I would be able to, that uh, I get the opportunity to go and see them? So maybe that's what they were trying to do, in which case it really isn't an investment. It's really an expense. You're not it's looking more for more of a marketing people. expense. It's a marketing cost. It's a marketing expense. So that's a different aspect of it. From the physics of venture capital itself has not changed fundamentally. Small amount of capital returning in a large outcome is what drives venture capital. And that's why arguably one of the world's best firms benchmark continues to do what they've always done. It's always been a 400 million-ish sized fund with, you know, five-ish partners uh, making early stage investments. And uh, they've done a fabulous job. They've obviously built great returns doing it. So that continues to exist. What happened, what changed in the last few years is that the amount of wealth creation became so large that people layered on other strategies. For example, we talked about layering on a growth strategy and doing later stage investments for lower risk, but lower returns. And so, you know, that makes sense. If the company is doing really well, you can do that. And they still call it venture capital. Um, now, at some point, you know, you should stop calling it venture capital, um, for better or for worse. But, you know, there are marketing reasons and legal reasons why people call it venture capital. And so that's okay. You know, that's just noise. That's just ambiguity that exists in the market. But true venture capital, in my opinion, is that very early stage, high-risk investment where you are looking for the 10x, 50x, even 100x, or as you said, you know, sometimes even 1,000x can happen. That is uh, venture capital investing. So uh, going back to the technical insights, uh, investing in technical insights, have there been things that were superb, you know, technical insights, but didn't make a good business or like didn't, you know, scale to a good business. Like initially you thought, okay, this is a great technical insight and this could be something huge and didn't work out. I know like venture is full of like, you know, initial excitement and, you know, after one year, two years, you know, that's the mathematics of it. Like only five companies out of hundred will actually make it. Uh, but any examples of like technical insights that you thought really, really worked like more than the 80%, but didn't actually work out? Absolutely. It happens all the time. That's why I have gray hair. I mean, uh, this is the nature of this work is that there is a high failure rate and you have to be able to sustain that. Um, I made an investment early in my career in a company called Panologic. Um, there was a beautiful fundamental technical insight, uh, which was building a stateless you know, display uh, protocol. And we built a display protocol and we built a device. We got design awards. We built a pretty reasonable business. In fact, um, I, as I mentioned, I was the first investor and then we subsequently raised money, I believe, from Mayfield and Goldman Sachs and uh, Com Ventures. And I mean, there was a whole bunch of capital that was invested in the company. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, we were not able to build a business. Yeah. So what happened? We lost everything. <laughs> that does happen. Yeah. You mentioned protocol and... In, in the field of blockchain, you hear the word protocol being used a lot. I'm curious what your thoughts on the field of blockchain itself and why have, if I'm right, I haven't seen you make any investments in blockchain, even though it's, um, I mean, there are definitely some technical insights for sure. Um, so tell me your thought process around what's happening with blockchain as a technology and what do you see um, happening there? 
So I completely agree with you. There are several very intriguing technical insights in the blockchain or Web3 world, generally speaking, starting with the very first paper itself, Satoshi Nakamoto's paper on the Byzantine general's problem. You know, that was a technical insight. When I went to school, we studied the Byzantine general's problem as an unsolved problem in computer science, right? And here was a paper which solves the problem. Now, it's not a very elegant solution. You know, proof of work is a very um, inefficient solution, but whatever, it was a solution. Yeah. Uh, pairing that with currency, I think, was part of the problem um, where I really don't see currency as a very good use case for the Byzantine general's problem, not because it can't be solved that way, but because there's a lot of political and regulatory reasons why we don't want to hand currency off to an anonymous, uncontrolled medium. You know, that's just not the way currencies work. For thousands of years, uh, the, the governments have kept a monopoly on currency. It has been illegal in various ways to mint currency. Uh, we went off the gold standard for very good reasons. Yes, there were some political reasons also. But for good reasons, we went off the gold standard. And the entire theory of economics has developed around how to manage currencies for it. That's not how the blockchain works. So um, I think the fact that they chose this use case early on was odd, but okay, maybe there were some valid use cases for that, you know, and it, and it could have built. And then, of course, we got a whole slew of scammers and, you know, all, all the bad elements that came in, which come in in every new technology early on. And that has just, that is kind of the current state of the world. So we don't have a use case other than currency for this interesting set of problems. I can actually imagine use cases, which I think are valid and viable use cases. You know, the most obvious one is um, all contracts, you know, should reside on a blockchain. Why not? Right. I mean, it's a very obvious use case. Um, and, and, and I think some value could be created if we did it. But right now, the noise was so bad. There was so much money and, you know, fake wealth creation that occurred uh, through the currency and the manipulation of currency in various forms that uh, I think it kept the whole industry down. That will go away. It is clearly clearing up now. And so I'm bullish on the blockchain. I believe long term, some use cases will emerge. And this technology will live on because those insights are fundamental and useful. Yeah, I think it's sort of over by choosing currency as the first use case, they over indexed on all negative incentives possible uh, and which attracted more scamming, which attracted, uh, you know, all Ponzi economics. Uh, and I, I could have all and always seen blockchain as a good solution for identity contracts. Theoretically, at least it seemed like it, but it never actually came into the picture But because there's so much distraction with all these things. Um, and I think there's also like sort of you, you know, once you have a hammer, you sort of use it for everything. Uh, problem with crypto where you take blockchain and put in everything. So there's blockchain cloud, there's blockchain, you know, you name a product, you combine it with blockchain, even though it, I don't think it's a foundational change, right? It's not like AI where you can put it in every application. Um, it is a, probably a vertical sector in itself, which will be like really useful maybe in some category of solutions. Um, and that's how I feel about blockchain. So it, it's, yeah, as you said, there's some smoke clearing, but I feel like it's so corrupted with currency and quick profit it's really takes someone, you know, genius to come out there and create these applications. So it's like super 
focused, super stoked about the problem that they are solving. And I haven't seen the proof of it. And the biggest negative I see for blockchain right now is why not the big seven companies invested significantly into the blockchain? I think that's the big negative I see. Like why, why, why hasn't Microsoft done something? They had some blockchain projects, but they got canceled. AWS did a little bit of, you know, dabbled in it, but never actually invested huge sums into it. Um, that, that's the big negative because any upcoming new technology, all the big seven usually, if there is an opportunity to be had, uh, they usually are the first ones to jump in and sort of try to use it. Especially, I think in last five, six years, we've seen that the big seven companies always try to adopt the new technology. Even Facebook tried something with, I think they tried with Libra and then they sort of realized how contentious it's going to be with regulatory bodies. Um, yeah, that, that, that's my take on it. Um, I think the, the takeaway for me, and I agree with you, is that AI is going to be in everything. The way I like to say it is that talking about software without AI will be like talking about software without electricity. There's no software without electricity. Yeah. Um, all software runs using electricity. And so that's how it's going to be. It is going to pervade every element of that. The blockchain, I think, is a very specialized technical insight with some specialized use cases, which will emerge. But, you know, because of the way it developed, because of the way the economy and the, and the industry developed, we're kind of stuck in, in, in a difficult area right now. This may actually be the best time to start a blockchain company. If you truly want to solve a real focused, narrow use case, I think this is probably a great time to start a company like that. So you mentioned AI, right? So talk to me a little bit about, you know, what we're seeing in AI. Obviously, there's a big breakout, you know, last year because of ChatGPT. It sort of captured everyone's attention. Everyone is, you know, now paying attention to AI. Although, like, things have been happening in machine learning and AI for a while. Like, those were, like, if you talk to any master's student, like, the go-to, you know, subject to choose is machine learning. It has been there like that for at least seven, eight years. Um but talk to me about what's happening in the sector and how do you see the whole sector being played out and especially what you are thinking about in terms of investment perspective. I'm fundamentally a believer in AI. Um, we have been working on AI for the last 40 or 50 years, incrementally improving it. And what has happened most recently is that we've clearly hit a tipping point. And that tipping point is now with LLMs, ChatGPT, some of these techniques. Uh, where we are going to get an enormous amount of utility and value out of AI being applied to a, a wide variety of problems. So I'm a huge believer in that. However, I also believe that AI is fundamentally a sustaining innovation. It is not a disruptive innovation. So in other words, AI actually helps the incumbents more than it helps the newcomers. So startups don't have a bit of free ride over here. It's not going to be that easy to go in and just go build a business. And Can you a little bit define, you know, what is innovative versus disruptive versus sustainable innovation? Yeah, so a sustaining innovation is an innovation that helps an existing company, which has an existing business, run their own business better, faster, cheaper. That's a sustaining innovation. So let's take a simple example. You are running, let's say, a trucking company in the 1980s, and then suddenly there's an IBM PC, and IBM PC is a, classic example of a sustaining innovation, you can buy a PC and you can now run your trucking company better. You can use it for scheduling, you can use it for communication, and that's exactly what happened. Every single company in the world eventually adopted the PC. 
as a sustaining innovation. A disruptive innovation is something which changes the dynamics of the distribution of the industry in a way that the existing incumbents don't have an advantage by adopting that technology. What's an example of that? The iPhone, the internet. They were highly disruptive. So Amazon was equal to Walmart, which was a massive retailer with hundreds of thousands of locations and hundreds and thousands of employees. And suddenly Amazon is able to sell head to head with a Walmart when the internet comes up. Yeah. That was a disruptive innovation. It is, Walmart has still not been able to respond to Amazon's innovation because they were able to take the internet and, and leverage that so beautifully. So that's the example of a disruptive innovation. Um, the question is, what is AI? I believe AI is a sustaining innovation, believe it or not. That doesn't mean there won't be any disruption. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that every company which is smart and intelligent will adopt AI and will benefit from that, which will only increase their competitive advantage. Which means if you're a startup, you have to work that much harder to win. Now, because it is, because it is so innovative, it will create some disruption on the edges. And yes, startup companies will be created, especially at the infrastructure layer. And that's why you are seeing so much investment go suddenly into the infrastructure layer of AI. And, you know, people are taking literally billion dollar bets saying, let's go build an LLM and maybe you can become the LLM that everybody uses. I think that's a very risky bet. Um, I'm skeptical of some of those bets, but certainly they are not completely irrational, those bets. There is some, there is some rationality. How are you thinking, you know, in terms of making bets, you know, at the seed stage, uh, are you trying to find more sort of like picks and shovels strategy of finding, you know, how can you deploy machine learning models better or how can you provide for, uh, new platforms where machine learning applications could be developed? Like, how are you thinking about you know, what sort of angles are there at the seed stage, you know, especially when there's so much investment going in, like, you know, just buying H100s. Yeah. So I have been investing in the AI space for about three or four years now. I mentioned Robust Intelligence, which is, you know, a security infrastructure uh, company in the AI space. I have another company called Cognitos, which is an investment I made about three years ago where they are able to apply English language, you can think of them as LLM, techniques to process automation. And today, of course, we are now directly using LLMs, but when we started the company, there was no public LLM available for you to be able to use. OpenAI didn't exist in the sense of an API that yeah. you could just, just leverage. So I've been investing in this for a while. As a VC, I am open to both. I am happy to do picks and shovels and applications. However, I always look for companies that are capital efficient. In other words, a small amount of capital can build a real business. That is part of my investment strategy. It's also because I believe that's the best for the founders and it's the best way to make money. So founders do much better when companies take less capital to succeed. And so it's kind of a win-win and that's the part of the market that I focus on. So it, that, as I said earlier, it is possible to imagine that you would start a company which needs a billion dollar seed round and $10 billion of investment to build a business, but that is not compatible with my strategy and it's a different part of the business. What do you think about, you know, one of the arguments that is happening right now is, especially in these large funding rounds that we are seeing, uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, where companies are building large LLMs, you know, let's take a 700 million, raise a 700 million round and then let's create a LLM. 
the argument is you're almost spending, maybe you'll end up spending half of that amount in just procuring hardware from NVIDIA, right? So it's sort of like that original point of maybe this will actually not fall into the venture return uh, model. So have do you have a take on whether these ideas when you, because there are some companies which are taking huge capital at seed rounds because of this reason that you can't acquire, you know, hardware if you don't have this amount of capital. Like if I raise 10 million, you will not be able to create an LLM is the, basically the case for it. Um, but on the opposite side, yeah, you raise, let's say 600 million valuation, you raise 300 million or something like that. What happens to the sort of the capital structure and the return structure of these companies, right? What do you think about that? So not, you know, as I mentioned, I don't focus on that part of the market. What I will say is that it is unlikely, but certainly possible that companies of that style, which take a large amount of capital up front, companies like that could potentially have a venture style return. Because at the end of the day, what determines returns is what is your value at the end of the journey, when you go public, when you sell the company, etc. And I could imagine a $10 billion outcome, a $50 billion outcome, and we've even seen $500 billion companies created or trillion dollar companies created. So really the sky is the limit in terms of the outcome. And so I don't want to say that it's impossible. Maybe there is a strategy there. Maybe they can win. Maybe there is a path that they do it with. That just happens to be a part of the market I don't focus on. What I will say is that in general, it is better to be more capital efficient. It is better for the founder and it is better for me as the VC. And that is true venture capital in some sense. That's what I'm saying. Absolutely agree. Um, I, th I think it would be fun to talk about some of the investments that you didn't make, but ended up being, you know, becoming big. Uh, can you give sort of like your, you know, anti-portfolio list um, uh, that, you know, you had a chance to invest, they became big, uh, but, uh, or, you know, you, you either regret or don't regret about those things. Yeah, you know, probably the best example, I mean, there's a bunch of companies I can talk about, but probably the best example is Docker. Uh, you know, I met uh, Scott Johnston uh, when he was, uh, you know, working on, uh, at that time, what was called Dot Cloud. This is even before they came up with the name Docker. And uh, and I passed on the opportunity. You know, I saw the value having come from VMware and virtualization. I mean, I could see, you know, the value of containers, but I didn't see the business. I didn't see the opportunity and I ended up passing. And then even worse, uh, much later, um, Scott was kind enough to come back to me and said, we're recapping the company. We're going to give you a chance to get in again at the ground floor. Uh, and I passed again because I couldn't convince myself that, you know, I, that it, it, that it made sense for me to do it. So uh, I guess I'm doubly guilty of not having seen that one. Uh, I think uh, what uh, Scott is doing with Docker now is going to succeed and they're going to build a real business and it will be successful. Uh, you know, part of my hesitation was open source. Part of my hesitation, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm an investor. I want to see a profitable business being created. Open source is great. I mean, obviously, I myself contributed to open source. I believe in open source in many ways. But uh, in fact, uh, the very first editor I ever used was Emacs. And, you know, I've, I've imbibed in the Richard Stallman uh, zeitgeist. But, um, but uh, it is 
hard to build a business with open source. You really have to have a very clear strategy on what you will own and what you will sell. And so that has been my hesitation uh, in that space. So tell me a little bit more about that because I've also seen funds that primarily like focus on investing in open source and sort of like doing the enterprise version of the open source model as the business model. And we've seen, I think, MongoDB, which is quite successful startup, does open source, if I'm not wrong. And there have been a bunch of companies that evolved from open source successfully and create sort of the enterprise versions of those open source projects. And that, that has sort of been the go-to model uh, for open source projects. Uh, so talk to me a little bit more about, you know, what, about investing in open source uh, companies. So I'm not saying that I don't invest in open source. In fact, I've just invested in an open source company. Uh, it's not announced yet, so I'm not going to share the name without the CEO's permission. Uh, literally two months ago, I mean, the company is growing, the project is growing very quickly. Uh, you can see all the GitHub stars and, you know, all the directions are in the right thing. But in that case, he has a very clear view of what business he's going to build. What part will be open? What part will be proprietary? What part will be a service? How it will be sold as a SaaS or as a service? which is classically what people have done when they try to build that business. I mean, there was also the support model. Some people tried to sell support uh, or an enterprise version. That, I think, is, is an even harder way to make money. But at the end of the day, again, I'm a first principles investor. I'm happy to take a look from a clean sheet of paper. And if you feel that if an entrepreneur believes that there is a way to build a business, I'm happy to invest. I think open source is a fabulous distribution strategy. It's a great marketing strategy. It's a great way to even get, build a community and get some initial validation, some of those things, uh, if you can get the flywheel working. So I'm absolutely open to that if somebody has a credible way to build a business. So we're almost at the end of our conversation and I want to move on to the section where I ask uh, some questions to all my guests. Um, so in, uh, quick four five questions. So the first question is, um, what, uh, what you would, tell your younger self about investing uh, when you first started the fund that you know now? How organizations make decisions. Ultimately, decisions are made by individuals, even when you think that an organization is making a decision. And understanding that dynamic, I think, uh, has, has been a journey for me as I've progressed in my career. I wish I had known it earlier. Uh, who are the mentors who, who helped you know, shape your career? I think Catherine Gould uh, arguably changed my life in terms of bringing me into venture capital, teaching me how to make money, and then helping me start engineering capital. She was uh, absolutely instrumental over there. And then very early in my career, Ken Kirshner, who was one of my first managers, uh, you know, took this raw engineer who basically knew how to write code and nothing else, and really made me into a whole person, into an executive, into a person who could you know, perform in an organization. And I still remember many of the lessons that Ken taught me. Uh, any favorite books or anything interesting that you're reading right now? Uh, at any given time, I have about five or 10 books on my side table. So I'm constantly reading. I love to read books. But uh, since we are mostly talking about entrepreneurship and investing, uh, the book I'd like to mention, I read it about 15 years ago, a book called Undaunted Courage by Stephen Ambrose. It's the story of, and it's a historically accurate account of the Lewis and Clark expedition. The book is a little bit old, um, so some of the language is a little difficult to read and it could come across as politically incorrect in some ways. 
But there are tremendous lessons in how entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship happens. Uh, if you look at it from a lens from 400 years ago, when America bought the Louisiana Purchase, President Jefferson bought the Louisiana Purchase. And then how did we take that from an investment perspective? Take one individual, Captain Lewis, who then subsequently hired, you know, uh, uh, Lieutenant Clark, uh, to start an expedition to then look at how they were going to build a business. Why was it a viable economic decision for the country to make? That's the lens with which you can read that book. And there are tremendous lessons for entrepreneurship in it. Why did Captain Lewis decide to take approximately 30 people on the journey with him? Uh, guess what? Most startups are roughly that when they start out, right? That's kind of the size. Um, how long did it take him to go all the way across and come back, prove product market fit for hunting beavers, et cetera, which was one of the original uh, business propositions? About three years. Guess what? That's the kind of journey that a startup takes over there. And then there are tremendous lessons uh, in the decision-making that Captain Lewis uh, made, which are brought out by the, by the author, Stephen Ambrose, in a beautiful way that I think entrepreneurs can learn from. Amazing. Uh, what, and uh, this is the final question. What advice would you give recent college grads, uh, who are interested in, you know, either starting a company or, you know, someone who's not a college grad, but, you know, starting a farm? I will uh, echo the advice I got from my father, who was a farmer. The best fertilizer is the dirt on your shoes. Get your hands dirty, get your feet dirty, get in there and start working at it. That's when the learnings will happen. Listening to me, as much as I'd love for you to listen to me, is not where the learnings will come. You will learn more by actually trying your hands to make something happen, to do it yourself. Um, Steve Jobs has a wonderful way of describing this uh, by putting two rocks in a little rock grinding machine and what happens to those rocks when they come out. Uh, you can listen to uh, Steve Jobs articulate the same idea on YouTube. The idea is get your hands dirty and you will learn faster than anything else you can read or hear. Amazing. I think that's a great note to end the podcast conversation. Uh, Ashmeet, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, it was a great conversation for me and hope uh, it was a great one for you. Thank you. I enjoyed it. <laughs>